The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Series of talks on the four foundations of mindfulness. And uh, there's a particular discourse that the Buddha gave that is called the Discourse on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, where he lays out 13 exercises or 13 approaches for developing your awareness. So the aware, your awareness can be a vehicle for freedom, for liberation. And um, most of these exercises involved uh, uh, seeing things more clearly. <clears throat> and um, when, when Buddhism came to China, <clears throat> they... Um, had to translate all these Sanskrit words into Chinese characters, into Chinese. And uh, the basic two practices of meditation, they translated it in a very simple way. In, in Sanskrit or in Pali, it's called samatha and vipassana. In Chinese, it's called stop and look. The, um, so the samatha practice is to kind of slow down, slow down the busy, agitated mind, stop the normal reactivity of the mind so that we can see more clearly. And so this process of uh, these 13 exercises of um, the four foundations of mindfulness can also be understood as ways of beginning to slow down the normal, reactive, busy mind so we can start seeing much more clearly what's going on here. And one of the ways of understanding this emphasis on seeing is um, an alternative kind of, maybe kind of informal synonym for mindfulness, which I like, which is in intimacy. <clears throat> so not only are we cultivating greater mindfulness, greater awareness, but we're cultivating, cultivating greater intimacy with our life, with our experience. And uh, one of the advantages of the word intimacy is that it's intimate, it's close, it's connected. Whereas uh, the idea of seeing more clearly, some people can interpret that as being a little bit distant, kind of aloof, kind of apart from the experience. You, you're up here in your eyes and what you're looking at is down there. But intimacy means that you're really connected. And one, as, as we slow down, as the normal reactive mind kind of stops or quiets, uh, one of the places we become intimate with is with ourselves. And we get greater and greater intimacy with ourselves. And this process of the four foundations of mindfulness, where we first are aware of the body, then aware of feelings, the feeling tones, then the mind, and then the particular processes that operate in the mind or the heart, um, is a journey from, the, uh, from what is kind of more outer to what's more intimate, closer in, to the very heart kind of of what makes us tick as a human being. <clears throat> and so the, the first five exercises have to do, the first six exercises <clears throat> have to do with the body. And um, these are, um, is that right? So the first seven, I think. It's first or six, yeah, first six have to do with the body. And, um, and this can be understood, even though you feel intimate with your body, 
in the way it's understood here is you're starting to kind of begin to connect to your body. And part of these exercises is you get closer in, deeper into your body, uh, to start feeling not only kind of the outer concept of the body or what goes on, you know, on a surface, but kind of really be connected. And as we settle into our bodies, we relax into our body, one of the things that becomes obvious sooner or later without even intending to look at this is just become much more aware of how the body is either comfortable or uncomfortable. And then in the language of this text, you're aware of things, how the body is pleasant and unpleasant sensations in the body. And this is not, uh, you know, uh, sophisticated stuff to feel that you have pleasure and pleasant and unpleasantness in your body. But it's an extremely important piece of information. Uh, and a lot of the wisdom of Buddhism comes from really understanding the nature of what's pleasant and unpleasant and using that as a guide for our behavior and our actions in the direction we're heading. Because this very simple separation, distinction between pleasant and unpleasant allows us, if we can see that clearly how it works in our, li- our lives, it allows us to make choices to move in the direction of the pleasant, what's more pleasant. And this is one of the characteristics of religious traditions and philosophies that do not, do not rely on external de- de- deities, um, external uh, reference points for what's truth that's going to tell you what's true, but religions that rely on really knowing for yourself what's true is they use something that maybe unfortunately is something called the pleasure principle. Understanding really what you can really know for yourself uh, what you can feel and experience and use that as a guide for a better life, for a happier life, for a freer life, for, a, um, and not, only for your, not only for yourself, but for other people as well. And so as we settle in to the body, at some point we start becoming aware of how things are comfortable and uncomfortable, pleasant and unpleasant. And, um, and this is a very important piece of information that we're getting. And... Uh, if we live a busy life, doing lots of things, running around doing tasks, or if we have, are preoccupied by certain concerns like fear and worry, or preoccupied with our, our fantasies, the world of our mind, the past and the future, it's possible to be so caught up in the world and things that people, sometimes they'll get disassociated from themselves. They don't actually feel their body. They're not connected to their body. Uh, two people spend too much time on computer monitors, it's easy to lose touch with their body. And uh, sometimes people will sit there and, and only realize when, they, when the electricity goes out or, you know, or, you know, or they have to leave or something, that um, how stiff their body has gotten because of how uncomfortable they are sitting there. And because you, people are distracted by their concerns and preoccupations, they don't really feel the impact of their posture, how they are. And uh, they don't know how tense they are, for example. So uh, some people, when they sit down to meditate, sometimes it's a surprise. Only then do they start realizing, wow, I'm tense in my shoulders. I didn't know how tense I was. I'm tight in my stomach, my jaws, my face. You know, I'm a mess. (laughs) And um, so one solution is never meditate. (laughs) 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 Because then you're not going to have this information. Uh, unless it's really, really big. But uh, what happens as we settle down, get more intimate, we, get, we start seeing how the tensions and, and the 
holdings in our body operate in more and more subtle ways. We start feeling the pleasant and unpleasant more deeply. And then, as I said last week then, there are two categories of feelings. There's those feelings of the things that are pleasant or unpleasant that have to do with more with the sensory world that we live in. The experiences, we, sensory experiences we have, whatever it might be, uh, somehow register as being pleasant or unpleasant. And then there's a whole other category of also kind of connected to the body, but um, uh, which are pleasant and unpleasant experience we have that do not arise because of what goes on in the sensory world around us. We haven't uh, eaten some good food, there's not a beautiful sunset, um, it's not because the temperature is, uh, is good or something, but rather um, it's from some kind of um, deeper movement of the heart, deeper movement of the inner life that somehow wells up and somehow spreads its effect on our body and our mind. And that can also feel pleasant and unpleasant. And this gets more intimate. This is that deep, deeper down. Um, you know, how your, the state of your heart, the quality of your heart, I think is more intimate than the good feeling you have from a massage. Massage is nice. It's kind of intimate. You only want certain people to do it for you, maybe. But, you know, it's still kind of surface. But to have a, a, your heart, you know, your heart massaging you, to feel kind of the quality and what goes on in your heart. You know, my feeling is that's more intimate, it's closer, it's closer in, in a nice way. So, um, so this, we get this information about the, what's pleasant and unpleasant in these different ways. The third exercise, the third category in these four foundations of mindfulness, the fourth, third foundation, is that of the mind. And the word is citta, C-I-T-T-A, and uh, it could also mean a uh, mind state. Uh, the mind is not the brain. The mind is kind of a, the pro- all the total processes of the brain, of the inner life. I don't know what, you, what exactly it is, but our mental life. And uh, the word citta sometimes is translated as heart. Uh, it's, you know, it's, uh, there's a tendency in English to translate it as mind. If you go to um, Thailand and Burma and places like that, sometimes if you ask them where their mind is, they point to what we would call our heart. And um, so sometimes it's translated that way as the heart. The Chinese character, uh, which we translate into English most often as mind, um, uh, is, uh, is actually a pictogram of a heart. So, you know, so, you know, we have such a strong separation in, in, in English, I think, between my, mind and body, mind and heart, but but sometimes in Asia. So keep that in mind. If I keep using the word mind and it's not so intimate for you, you're welcome to translate in your mind to heart. So the third foundation is becoming aware of the mind, the mind state, or the quality of the heart, the quality of the mind. And in this movement journey into greater intimacy, the quality of your mind and heart is really intimate. Really, now we're getting really down to what's maybe much more important. And it, that you have, an, and you have a nice food, you watch, watch a nice sunset, you have a nice walk in the park, and you feel kind of relaxed and nice. That's in, 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 you know, that isn't, isn't as important as the real quality of the heart itself. In fact, you can do pleasant things in the world, that, um, but if your heart's not right, it's kind of in, you feel kind of off. You feel like oh, you know, it doesn't even doesn't sometimes it doesn't even matter if it's a beautiful sunset if 
you're really feeling lousy in the inside. And so now that, so that as we settle in and settle in, then at some point the quality of your mind, the quality of your heart begins to stand out and highlight. And then the instructions are to start noticing that. Pay attention to it. And, um, and, we become, and that allows us to start becoming the custodian of the, of the quality of our own heart, quality of our, our mind. It's a very deep thing. We, the, how we feel on the inside doesn't have to be left to chance. But this is something that we can, we have some ability to create conditions, to direct, to evoke, to develop. So we develop a higher quality of inner life. And in Buddhism, this is considered to be real wealth. The uh, real, uh, real spiritual wealth in Buddhism is the quality of your heart, not how much money you have in your bank account. So to kind of develop and enhance and kind of support that requires us to see clearly what's there. And in this Buddhist practice of mindfulness, uh, the first task always is to stop and take a good look. See what's going on. Uh, don't be in a hurry to fix. Don't be in a hurry to change yourself. Do the really important work, and sometimes very difficult work, to take a good look and see what's really going on here. And many Buddhist teachers will emphasize over and over again, uh, just practice non-reactive awareness because you need to take a really good look at what's going on. So, so take your time before you start shifting and changing what's there. So in this, in this third foundation then, we're looking at the quality or the character of the mind, the mind state that we have. And uh, in this text, it divides, it lists um, um, eight categories of things you can notice about your mind, your mind state. And these are all set up, these are set up as pairs. So I'll, I'll do the first three pairs first. You can know that um, when the mind has lust, that there is lust in the mind. When the, when the mind state is characterized as being full of uh, lust or greed, greed probably doesn't, there's probably no good word, English word, to, uh, to characterizes what the original means, but it's some kind of uh, combination of wonderful soup of greed, lust, passion, in the worst senses of it. <laughs> and... Um, and uh, so, you, so if the mind is caught up in these kinds of states of greed or lust, um, one knows that's the case. And what's interesting is that the instructions say nothing whatsoever about uh, judging it. Just know it for what it is. And many people find it's very, very helpful, kind of re- a relief, to be able to just be w- with how you are, even if it's not so... Um, ex- you know, not the best qualities that you have, and not to judge it, not to feel, not to, and not to evaluate yourself by it, not to say, not to define yourself by it, but just to see it. Oh, there's a mind that's filled with lust, and um, and just see that clearly. And to, when there's a mind that doesn't have lust, to know there's no lust. And it goes on and says. When there's a mind of hate, of ill will, know that it's, that's the case. When there's a mind that's characterized, the mood that's characterized by the lack of ill will, know that that's the case. When there's a mind that's deluded, characterized by some kind of delusion or confusion, know that that's the case. 
And when there is no delusion or confusion, know that that's the case. Very simple, kind of binary kind of experience. Um, the tradition itself will then say sometimes that uh, a mind of, uh, that la- lacks um, uh, uh, lust is, can be characterized by generosity. A mind that has, doesn't have any uh, ill will or hate is characterized by love. A mind that's, uh, that doesn't have delusion is characterized by wisdom, sometimes perhaps. So the fact that, but it's kind of noticing what's there. Now, this relates to the earlier exercise of noticing things that are being pleasant and unpleasant. Because it's possible to notice that a mind that's filled with lust is unpleasant. A mind that's filled with ill will is unpleasant in and of itself. And the mind that's filled with delusion is unpleasant in itself. And you have to kind of, some of you might have a, a, a good relationship with lust, I don't know. So, you know, I, I, uh, uh, but in the Buddhist analysis, whatever they call this word raga, lust, um, is unpleasant. You have to go along with it. <laughs> in, this anal- in this particular analysis that we're doing. Um, so it involves a contraction, it involves a, 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 um, a, a narrowing, it involves a kind of drive, it involves some kind of way in which the mind is agitated or tight or tense, these states. And it might not be obvious because sometimes uh, some of these, uh, the, 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 uh, they might involve the pursuit of pleasure or the expectation of pleasure or sometimes even uh, minds uh, when there's a lot of uh, anger or hate sometimes, the energy and the vitality of it, some people feel ad- get addicted to because it feels good to be alive. <clears throat> so there can be something pleasant to it. But as the mind gets quieter, as the whole system quiets down more and more like in meditation, at some point it becomes really obvious. No one has to tell you this. It's not like because it's in the book. It's just like, wow, that doesn't feel good to be caught, to have the mind kind of under the under the grip of these different mind states. And um, the analogy that's used for a mind that's in the grip of ill will is that of uh, two really big, strong people that come and grab you and hold you so you can't be free, you can't move. So sometimes ill will just has, grabs you and you're, you're kind of like in their power and you can't really be free to do what you want. Um, so... So at some point in this process of stopping and looking, we start becoming aware of what's actually this going on in the inner quality of our life. Take that in, notice it. And then notice that there's a difference between that which actually is inherently unpleasant and that which is inherently pleasant. And as you get more and more familiar with that, which one would you choose? And I think the assumption is you would choose the pleasant one. You would avoid the unpleasant one. You'd move in that direction. And, um, and this is why they say that this mindfulness practice also has an ethical quality because generally the, the, uh, some of the uh, unethical stuff that happens around um, um, pleasures you know, are, dr- are driven by lust. The unethical things that happen because of hate are driven by hate you know, violence and stuff like that. So, um, so to, um, the t- to move towards the pleasant in these mind states, 
tends to move people to becoming more ethical as well, which is very nice. Um, and then it goes on to say, talk about um, be aware of a mind which is contracted and notice a mind that's uh, scattered. And you can feel that in yourself. Sometimes it just feels like everything's kind of you know, shriveled up into a small little contracted ball and tight. And sometimes you just, you're just scattered and fragmented, just jumping around so much all over. And that also doesn't feel so good. But you can see that and feel that. It's also possible to have those, all these things happen and not really feel the impact of having these states on oneself. Because one is so preoccupied and involved in what one's doing, when one's attention is not directed back to this inner quality of what's going on. Then it goes on and says that uh, you should know when there's a mind, and now, now it gets better. If you know, there's a second uh, uh, group of a pair of four, of uh, four, second. So the, the next one says, um, um, when, a, uh, when a mind is uh, expanded, know the expanded mind. When it's not expanded, know that it's not expanded. Expanded mind is what happens in, uh, deep, in things like deep meditation or if you're out in nature or something. That there are certain times when just your mind, your awareness just seems so spacious and large and clear that it seems like it's bigger than anything that you know in, the, in detail. Like if you're aware of this room, uh, you might you could aware that the room, the space in the room is bigger than any of the indi- things or people that are in the room. And you could be preoccupied with the objects in the room or you can open your awareness and look at how high the ceiling is and then you kind of feel, have a different feeling of space and openness. Same thing with awareness, with the mind. The mind can start becoming expansive and it feels like it's bigger than anything that you know. And it's very pleasant. It's a very, very uh, sublimely enjoyable state to be in. It's also possible to know that as you get into deeper states of mind, these higher qualities of, uh, of, of heart that as possible, so it's possible to feel into it that um, even though it's so nice what I'm having now, there's things that are even better. There's even uh, more expanded or more sublime or more, more still in a nice way. And one can actually feel this. It's not like you... you, you even want to go to the better states, but you can feel, oh yeah, there's, it's, you know, it's, 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 there's better places to go. And one can also be aware of when the mind is liberated and when it's not liberated. And liberated means that it's free from being caught up in preoccupations, free of greed, hate, and delusion, free of um, attachments. You can feel when you're attached, when you're filled with greed or hate and these things, and you can feel when the mind is free of that. And that's a very important piece of information to have. Because then also, if you have that information, then you can kind of also know what's possible, your potential. You can know what you're possible to work towards. You can feel that the uh, liberated mind, when it's temporarily free from these things, is a much better state of mind to be in than a mind that's not free. And that becomes, all this allows you to become your own teacher. And you really become aware of this very, very intimately. You don't, need, you don't really need a Buddhist teacher anymore. You don't need to come here anymore. And i um, trying to talk myself out of a job. Because you get the information inside of yourself about how to find your way. That's the way. That's the direction to go towards more freedom. That's possible. 
For some people, the first real palpable experience of a liberated heart is a wake-up to them that of a potential they had no idea they had. And it's like now they live in a new world because now I don't have, I don't have to live the way I was living all the time. It's like you never took a shower and you finally took a shower. You say, wow, you know, I had no idea. Why didn't anybody tell me? And um, so, you know, it can be that dramatic. And then uh, to know the a mind that is, um, what's the last one? Um, it's, um, I forget. There's one more. Oh, it's... Um, um, oh, I, I, I skipped one. The last one is liberated. And the second to last is concentrated. The concentrated mind and mind is not concentrated. And, um, and that makes sense that the concentration comes first because that's a stepping stone to some of the deeper liberation. And that also to really, really feel the quality of a concentrated mind is very, very helpful. And to recognize that, that's, for some people, uh, that's kind of like, you know, maybe they didn't just get to take a shower, but they discovered a sponge bath. You know, it's, you know, it's that good, you know, to have be concentrated compared to, you know, it feels pretty good. So, um, so that uh, in this uh, third foundation of mindfulness, the foundation of mindfulness of the mind, it start becoming aware of the quality of your inner life, the quality of your mood or mental state that you have. And this becomes a way of becoming much more intimate with yourself and getting uh, really familiar with a part of yourself that, um, that uh, is probably where you measure, where you evaluate how you're feeling, how you are anyway. That when you're feeling well, probably there's a good mind state there. It's hard to feel well when the mind state is, is kind of lousy. And, um, and when you, uh, so to start becoming sensitive to it, aware of it, that kind of intimacy to know it, and to know it in more and more subtle, deeper, fuller ways, and start getting a sense of the range of options that goes on in the mind states. Some people can be stuck in the same mind states for decades. Uh, I've met people who seem to have anger or seem to have fear. And it's there, maybe it's the background, default kind of mood or mind state. It's always there. And they have other things that go on. They might be happy and excited and all kinds of things that happen. But it's kind of like on top of that. But as we get quieter and quieter, we start seeing that the mind state underneath has this pervasive fear or resentment or anger or something, something that's there. So as we stop and look, stop and stop and stop, we start seeing these deeper and deeper layers and get familiar with ourselves. Sometimes it's a shock for people to discover what's there. But this is the good news to see what's there because then we can start um, seeing, we can start making a difference. We can change it, we can move it in, in new ways. The more we become aware of the range of mind states that we're in, <clears throat> then uh, this leads to a very important insight that our mind states are not inherently fixed. They're not built into the hardwire of our brain. They're part of the software operating. And so they come and go depending on the software we're, we're using. And, uh, 
and so there's choice and we can kind of begin kind of flowing between them and start holding them more lightly. A really great um, uh, step in this mindfulness practice is when you can hold your mind states, whatever's going on for you, lightly. When you start seeing them not so personally, but just see them as phenomena rather than kind of using it to define yourself or react to or something. Now, as we, this intimate connection to yourself deepens and you really start becoming aware of the intricacies of the mind states, what goes on in the mind states, learning to recognize it, that sets the stage for beginning to understand the software or sets the stage to beginning to understand what actually goes on in the mind, what are the activities of mind that go on that, um, that give birth to particular mind states. So it's one thing to be, you know, have a mind state that's characterized, mood that's characterized by anger. It's another thing to recognize how anger was born inside of you. What are the particular movements of the mind that brings that about? And this is the uh, fourth foundation of mindfulness. Uh, and this is to start looking at what's called in Pali the, the, the dharmas. The dharma here means the mental processes that uh, goes on. And what I, I like, in my analysis of this, I feel like the mental processes, really how what operates in there is much more intimate, it's closer in, it's closer to the heart of the matter than our mood and our mental state. <clears throat> Some people identify very much with their mental states and their mood and they take it to be, this is who I am, end of story. You know, I better have a good mental state and that's all it's, all it's about. But as we get more intimate, more intimate, what gets more and more interesting is not the mental state that we have, but the, within the mental state, the, what's actually, how the mind is operating, what it's engaged in, what it's interested in, what it's trying to do. And so by becoming familiar with the mind state, it, get, it sets the stage or kind of gives us the information we need to begin looking more deeply. That's very hard to see if you're not settled enough to really stay there with the mind state. Make sense? <clears throat> so next week, I'll start the discussion about the five exercises having to do with um, mind states, <clears throat> uh, with the, the mind process, the mental process that goes on. And then um, hopefully this, you know, you start seeing how this leads to kind of a, making choice, looking more deeply into the experience, understanding it more deeply, and how it can lead to a liberation um, that doesn't feel like it's liberation just by accident, but uh, liberation that has to do with really uh, beginning to understand what's really going on in there in a way that can't, you can't, if you don't really stop and look well. Does that make sense? I hope it makes sense. I realize there's a lot of information, so I apologize for those of you who just felt like a lot to, to track. Um, we have 10 minutes. If some of you have any questions, comments, desire for clarification, protests, anything's welcome. I was wondering if you could say a little more about knowing when you're deluded. Because it kind of seems like you can't know when you're deluded or else you're not deluded. 
Yes. Yeah, the illusion is uh, the more difficult one to see. But, um, uh, you know, the, the mind is, um, uh, you know, can operate sometimes uh, even um, in opposition to your best understanding. So sometimes uh, habits of thinking will operate even though we've learned that they're not really true. And so, um, so after a while you might see, you know, oh, you know, uh, I thought that television was going to make me feel good. And, uh, and that's kind of what's driving it, is a desire to watch TV, you know, to, you know, and, but maybe you've learned, you've learned, you know, many times you just feel lousy after you, you, after you watched it, but you, well, maybe this show will work. <laughs> and then it happens again. So, you know, so sometimes even though, so the mind can operate under delusion, even though we already have the information to know that it doesn't really work that way. So I think that's an example of how you can know when you're deluded. Does that make sense? Yeah, thanks. Are there any other examples of uh, how you can know delusion that you, any of you can suggest? So can you pass the mic down? Your spouse can tell you. (laughs) It only works if you believe the spouse. (laughs) A common delusion... um, that off, off, uh, not common, but one that I fall into sometimes is the, uh, the delusion of permanence. And I know that, you know, every, almost everything is changing and things will change eventually and all that. So I know that, but there's an instinctual drive or this instinctual movement sometimes I have. When, uh, I, oh, no. Like, I remember when I was, uh, once, many, many years ago, I was depressed. And, and, um, and it was like, oh, no. I'm always going to be depressed. That was the, that was the, or when a challenge with my kids when they were young, we had some wild days. And, uh, and I kind of instinctually was operating, kind of like, I knew that it wasn't going to last forever. They were going to grow up, but, but uh, <laughs> logically I could know that, but, you know, the kind of instinctual way of, re- of acting was as if this is forever, I'm stuck. So that's an example of delusion too, like the delusion of permanence. This is the way it's going to be. My wife, when we were kids, we were young. Sometimes, at least I remember once beautiful day when we were having challenges, and she looked up at me and she said, "We're having one of those kinds of days," and that popped the bubble of my delusion of permanence. Oh, just this is how it is today. Thank you. I think uh, certainty sometimes for me is a form of delusion. Mm. 
because I'll never examine any other perspective. Mm. So, uh, too much certainty. I'm right. They're wrong. <laughs> Curiosity yeah. is better sometimes. Yeah. And you know, and then there's words like never and always. That uh, you know, we, eventually we learn that maybe that's not. You know, there's maybe might be a little delusion in some of that, those words sometimes. I saw a hand out there. If, you, if we can pass the mic all the way to the outer hall. You want to come forward a little bit and get the mic. Uh, is this good? I wondered if you underline the entire um, awareness that you're you're focusing on attaining through letting go of lust and all the categories that you were just mentioning. Um, through this revolution that you realize and then you get to a point that you, you, you think this is it, then if you underline that. That's delusion. That is delusion. If that is delusion, then the real let go of what you're pinpointing uh, is what you're preaching um, is underlined. I don't know if I'm communicating yeah. on so, underlined correctly. So, so you mean by underlined, meaning as a form of delusion? It, it, it's, it, it creates a paradox. It's a paradox. The, um, I th- maybe. Uh, so uh, to avoid the paradox, the emphasis in, this, in Buddhism, the early Buddhism, is mostly to look at, um, to see, see what's going on. And if you are clinging if you're attached and it hurts to do so uh, let go if you can and then what's left after you let go there's no need to say anything about it there's no need to underline it they can just be what it is is and then next they, and, and then next so basically you and the next time you cling, notice that. Yes. Uh, so basically what you're saying is that uh, to let go, uh, you will fall into that whatever, you don't want to talk about it anymore. Um, you want to call it love, you want to call it the state of nirvana. Uh, and having no recognition um, on, on basically this, and no expression on this, again, will give you a continuous experience of that state of nirvana. But I, if you ever pinpoint it again, yeah. uh, again, you're underlining it. Yes. So I don't know what's yeah. the cause of any practice. Yeah. So um, I think there can be recognition. And you can, you can use language a little bit to point to something. But as soon as you underline it, as soon as you pinpoint it, this is it, then you certainly have lost it. And uh, so, um, I mean, I know that I have, a, um, I have a right elbow, but if I try to g- grab it with my right hand, I can't really get to it. So um, the, the experience of freedom exists in a certain kind of very important way and becomes a reference point of something you can recognize. But as soon as people get, it's possible to get attached to it. 
and hold on to it. This is it. And so what I, I kind of prefer to focus on is not any kind of state that people attain, but rather the fluidity and ease that we can move between states. Serving. Okay? Thanks. Great. So, um, four foundations of mindfulness. Body, feelings, mind, and then we'll do these uh, mind processes starting next week. And, uh, and I hope that uh, you, this idea of intimacy makes it come a little more alive and more attractive somehow. Yes, how nice this idea of coming closer in, deeper into yourself, getting to know yourself, being intimate, cozy, and not spinning out. May you be intimate with yourself. Thank you.